Young women have been growing up with an indoctrination of what womanhood is and what it should be. They've been taught everything that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. Young women who want to be different from the world are rare, but they are real. On this Rare But Real podcast, Audrey Brogy will often be joined by her daughter, Grace Anna, and her daughters-in-law, Maureen, Kesset, and Marilyn, who desire to be discerning in a day when everything seems to go against God's design. Join them in the journey of becoming rare but real. It takes courage and conviction. Okay, I'm glad y'all are here. This is our last session for the fall. And what's so great about it is we're ending on a high note because we're going to a wedding. That's what's happening today. Um, And then we'll continue, you know, after the first of the year, and we'll finish the book after the first of the year. Um, But coming in October, which I mentioned it last week at the beginning um, of the message, is that we have a conference called A Vision for Motherhood coming up October 20th and the 21st. I hope y'all will make plans to be here. And uh, my daughter, it's her study. She's going to be presenting it here. She's done it in her church, and I'm very excited to have her come do this here. And let me remind you, it doesn't matter your season of life. It doesn't matter your age. It doesn't matter your stage. It's for you because everything we do here for women is teaching the Word of God, and we need to be equipped to rightly handle the Word of truth so that we can be all that God wants us to be as women as we share truth with one another. So I hope you'll make um, plans to be here for that. Um, And of course, I titled today's message, Going to the Chapel. And before we get into today's message, let me open us with prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it's able to divide, it's able to pierce our hearts, it's able to speak to us. That is the way you speak to us today, through your word. And I'm so thankful that you have given it to us. And Father, I'm grateful for this book of the Bible. I'm just grateful to be in it again myself because I've just needed it. I've needed to be reminded. I've needed to learn new things. I've needed to be stirred up in my own heart of your good and godly plan for us as men and women in this day and age in which we live. Father, I thank you that your word gives us such a clear picture of man and woman and creation and what you intended And that the more we know your word, the more we are able to stand firm and the more discerning we are when all the voices in the world are trying to scream at us to tell us something that is in opposition to your word. So, Father, I pray that you would help our um, convictions run deep as we study further in this wonderful book, The Song of Songs. Be with us. And we love you. We're so grateful for you. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. So go into the chapel, and we're going to get married today. You know, gee, I really love you. We're going to get married. We're going to the chapel of love. You know, spring is here. Well, not quite, but it will be. Um, You know how the words go. The sky is blue. The birds all sing as if they knew. Today's the day. We'll say I do, and we'll never be lonely anymore. It's a love story. That's what we find in the Song of Songs, a love story that blossoms into a wedding story that grows into a lasting, lifelong marriage. This book is such a beautiful 
picture of love and commitment. And it's a beautiful picture of what God's heart is in this whole area. And so far, we've learned that the song is, first of all, this love story written by God, but you won't find God's name anywhere in it. I'm going to review just a little bit. We've learned that this love story, as it's written in this book, has two main characters, the young king longing for his bride and the young bride longing for the king. As chapter one opens, the love st- their love story has already begun. We, we join them sometime after the young man has declared his intentions for her. We see the desire of the young woman, her longing for the king while she's in the palace. He's brought her there. And as this poor country girl who has only worked at home, who has protective brothers, she feels insecure. She feels ugly. We learn that as she compares herself to other women. And the king assures her of her beauty and they compliment compliment one another, and we called it love talk, or I called it love talk, um, and what little boys might call mushy stuff, and then the little boys would say yuck and gross, but we see the couple at the banquet hall where the young man declares to everyone that hisses his girl. We saw that he was not ashamed of her. He was proud of her. His banner over her was love. And she felt so secure. She felt so loved that we saw that she felt like she might faint. Faint because of her love for him. She wanted to be sustained with raisin cakes. And she longed for his embrace. And we, we know, the scripture tells us, that she wants his embrace. She wants more than his embrace. She wants his kisses. And so that's where we saw her say, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. She doesn't hide her feelings. She's up front and open because he's made her feel secure and he's led the way. And because of his leadership in the relationship, she is so looking forward to the day when she can give herself to him. And then we saw how at some point she left the palace and she went back to her home in the country. And Solomon missed her so much that he wanted to be where she was, so he came to her home. He climbed those mountains. He jumped over those hills. He came bounding to her with this sense of urgency. And that's what love does sometimes. That's when two people are in love, they, they, it produces this strong desire to be together. You want to be with the one that you love. And his desire was to be wherever she was. And it brought him to her home in the country. And then he invited her to go with him for a walk in the countryside. And he pleaded with her. And it's not that Solomon was requesting some physical liaison in the country. That was not his intention, His intentions were obviously pure. He just wanted some time alone with her. That's what he expresses in the next verse when he says in in Solomon 2, verse 14, Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. And we learned that this is a natural expression of love. When a man has found his woman, he wants to be with her and he wants time with her. He likes to hear her voice. He likes to look at her. You know, we've all heard the, heard the term the male gaze. And, the, and, and I want to say this here. Notice how he says, let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. And so I want to stop there. I didn't have time to stop there last week, but I want to ask you a question, married women. This is for the married women. Would your husband say today, after being married to you for however many years that you've been married, would he say, I want to hear my wife's voice, for her voice is sweet. Is your voice sweet to him? Is my voice sweet to my husband? 
Is my form lovely to him? Is your form lovely to him? And of course, the word form is not just referring to her body. He's speaking of her total person. He wants to know the whole woman. Sure, he's attracted to her physically, of course. And we'll see that attraction even more when we come back together after our break in chapter four, but that's not the whole picture of a woman. She's not just a lovely girl physically to him. She's lovely as a person to him, and he loves her voice. It's sweet to him. And it's easy to build a man up when he's courting you. He's so strong. He's so handsome. Oh, I just like love him so much, you know. But sometime after the honeymoon, sometime after there's been some years, words can become like a our words, I'm talking about women's words, can become like the Bible describes as a dripping faucet. It's why don't you? How come you don't? And you always fill in the blank. We could go on and on and on there. Some call it nagging. After a while, husbands stop listening because we just become kind of like background noise. And so often he doesn't want to hear our voices anymore because our voices are no longer sweet. And of course, in the courtship phase, while our form is lovely and our voice is sweet, he wants to be with us. He can't wait. He wants to hear anything that we have to say. And then after a few years in the marriage, hmm, sometimes the form becomes annoying. The whole person becomes annoying and our voices become dripping. So that's something just to think about. Because a good regular guy, I know there's exceptions to this, usually don't say everything he's thinking. Maybe we're driving him crazy, but he just doesn't tell us that. That's why the scripture says in Proverbs 19, 13, a foolish son is destruction to his father and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Not, Not everything that we say, but those contentions. But what happens is so often it's the only thing that we communicate are the contentions, and that's a constant dripping. And those are things that God's telling us, bring a man down. A foolish boy destroys his dad. That's what this proverb says. And along with that, he has to deal with this dripping wife, nagging and complaining. Contention, ready, that just means ready to argue. You know, ready to fight, ready to debate him, ready to cause conflict or strife. And so often we as women do that with our voices. Or sometimes we do it with the silent treatment. And that's just as much of a dripping faucet. Proverbs 27, 15 to 16 says, a constant dripping on a day of steady rain and a contentious woman are alike. He who who would restrain her restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. I mean, don't you just love the metaphors here? I mean, you hear what he's saying? It's impossible for a man to restrain a woman. That's what he's saying because he's comparing her to wind. How do you restrain wind? I mean, how do you, you know, catch the wind? How do you do that? You can't. He has to guard himself and he has to wait for the wind to die down on its own. You just have to wait for it to die down. And how does a man grasp oil? He can't. It's too slippery. And so a man cannot restrain his woman. She's too slippery. We're too slippery. We're too much like wind. So what that means is we as women must learn to restrain ourselves. I love that word restrain because you find in Proverbs 2, it says, a wise woman restrains her lips meaning she might want to say a whole bunch of things, but if she's wise, she pulls it in. She restrains it, and God wants us to do that. He calls us to restrain ourselves. 
Now, God calls our men to lead us, to be our head, but our man can't force us to do anything. God calls us to follow him. And, you know, I mean, they can't make us submit. They can't make us respect them. They can't do any of those things. God wants us as women who are growing up in the faith to do those things voluntarily, voluntarily out of our love ultimately for the Lord Jesus Christ, out of our love for the Lord. That's why we do those things. So, Getting back to the question, is your form lovely? The total person, is your voice sweet? And I would encourage you to go home today and use your sweet voice and let your form be lovely. Let him say after so many years of marriage, oh my dove in the clefts of the rock in the secret place of the steep pathway, let me see your form, let me hear your voice for your voice is sweet and your form is lovely. Well, after that request for this alone time, she told him no. Remember that? Not right now. She didn't want them to be in a position for the little foxes to ruin their vineyard. Remember, this is the girl who didn't want to be seen as a loose girl. She didn't want her love to be aroused before God's timing, and so she refused the invitation for the walk. And it's like she rehearses his character to herself out loud. So she answers him, catch the foxes for us. The little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in bloom. We've got these, not this wonderful vineyard. We don't want the foxes to get in ruin, ruin it. So she's telling him that the time will come if you continue reading that. At the cool of the day, when the shadows flee away, when the time is right. And so he had to turn and go away just like he came. They need to be separated for now. And so is he offended? Does he get mad? Well, let's read through chapter 3, which is where we are today, and look at that in detail. And again, I'm going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll kind of tear it apart. Verse 1, on my bed, night after night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. I must arise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. And I said, have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases." What is this coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant? Behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it, of the mighty men of Israel. All of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night." King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart." And you'll see on your outline, I have three points on there. And point one is, all she has to do is dream. I'm sorry, I'm using song titles. 
On my bed, night after night, I saw him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but did not find him. So she's saying, all night long on my bed, during the night, while she's sleeping, while she is away from him, she dreams. And it's not a happy dream. It's not dreams about her wedding day. It's not dreams about their romance, but it's a terrifying dream. It's a dream of fear and loss. In her dream, she has lost him. And you can see the depth of her love and despair here because in each of these four verses, she says, the one whom my soul loves. The one whom my soul loves. This was her expression for him. She had this deep and abiding love for him. And remember in chapter 1, verse 7, after her feelings of insecurity, when she wanted his approval, she said, tell me, oh, you whom my soul loves. I mean, this girl loved him so deeply. And obviously, her greatest fear was losing him. And isn't that true for us? When you really love someone and you experience that love to the depths of your being, isn't your greatest fear losing that someone? I mean, love, when you love deeply and you, and you lose the one that you love, it's like the pain is so deep you can't even describe it. How many of you have ever had terrifying dreams about losing your husband or losing one of your children? I know I've had many dreams over the years about losing mine. You know, the kind of dreams where you wake up in a sweat and you're just so glad it was just a dream because it felt so real. You thought it was actually happening. And of course, this is why so many people say after they've really experienced a great loss that keeps They say this, I kept thinking it was just a dream and I was going to wake up. Have you ever felt that way? Because it was your reality, but you wish it was a dream and you were hoping you would wake up from this nightmare, but then you find out it's not a nightmare. It actually happened. And so here this girl is experiencing her, her worst fear through this dream. That's A on your outline. Yet God's doing something in her life as she faces that fear. In her dream, she says this in verse 2, I must arise now and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I must seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but did not find him. So she's looking for him in her dream. She's looking in the streets. She's looking in the squares. She's seeking, but she's not finding. Verse 3, she says, The watchmen who make the rounds in the city found me. And I said, Have you seen him whom my soul loves? And there's this sense of urgency she has. It's like a desperation. It's like she's lost part of herself. So she, so she does in her dream everything she knows to do to find him. She's going to every part of the city, all of its streets, all of the squares, asking anyone she meets if they've seen him. It's obvious she feels lost, abandoned. She's experiencing deep heartache. And once again, only intense love does that. Again, like when a parent loses a child. You know, I've thought of many troubled dreams I've had over the years. As a child, I used to dream my, my worst fear was losing my parents. And, and really, that's probably a child's greatest fear, that losing their parents. If they stop to think, oh, when they realize that people can die. And at different times, you know, the, over the course of your life and my life, but we probably had a relationship where we thought we were so in love with some boy 
And then our greatest fear, like the Shulamite, was losing that and that he would break up with us. And then, you know, when I did get married and I found the one my soul loves, I used to worry that, you know, God would take my husband. You know, that was my fear of losing him. And then when I began to have children, the fear of losing them was perhaps the greatest fear I've ever faced. And of course, I almost lost Grace Anna in the womb. And that was heart-wrenching when Jeremy was in surgery for a ruptured appendix that should never have happened. It seemed like the longest day of our lives. The fear of losing him was so great. And then I remember a time when my youngest child was two years old and I couldn't find him anywhere. It's like he just disappeared off the planet. I mean, we were at home. I searched and I searched and I searched and all the rest of my children were looking and we were looking down at the marsh, but we were on their bikes, we're getting in the car, like looking everywhere because it was just this horrible fear, imagining all kinds of horrible things. And of course, it turns out that he was playing hide and seek and he was just very quiet. But I was in a panic. The fear of losing him was ripping my heart apart. And of course, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she experienced this fear. Remember when Mary and Joseph left Jesus? And the the story's found in Luke chapter 2. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. Then after three days... They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Mary was a mother just like you and me. And when she saw he was in the temple, of course, she was relieved because she had been in a panic. Obviously, she says they've been anxiously looking for him. And that's the nature of her question. This is the same woman who years before had said to the angel, behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And Jesus at 12 years old now is the one who calms her fears because he's the one who said, why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? He was reminding his parents of why God sent him. And he was in charge, even though they didn't really understand this. And of course, verse 50 says, but they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Mary remembered this. She thought about it. She faced her fears and she would face even more because she was going to watch her son suffer and die on the cross some years later. And he would be gone three days before he would rise from the grave. Verse 52 says, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So what's your greatest fear today? Is it losing someone you love? Is it being found out about something that you've been hiding? Is it death? What if your greatest fear came true? What then? I mean, I told you that as a mother, my greatest fear was losing one of my children. And then, of course, the next was losing a grandchild, and that actually did come true. 
And what did we do as a family? What did I do? Whom did we depend upon? Did we fall apart? Did we trust God? And when I say fall apart, of course you fall apart. But I mean, did we fall apart where we weren't going to get up? And what about my son? And his wife? And Jane's siblings? What did they do? Whom did they depend upon? Did they fall apart where they would never get up again? Did they trust God? You know, I want to encourage you at some point, maybe later today, go to my website and hear them talk about how God sustained them. Listen to the two podcasts that I did this summer with my daughter-in-law. We called it Losing Jane, Part 1 and Part 2. Because sometimes our greatest fears do cripple us. But here's the thing. If our greatest fear does come true, we have to remember that God is already there. He is ahead of us. He has us. And he will not let us go. He is faithful. He holds us fast. His grip is secure. He holds us as tightly as he possibly can. He's God, and he's already there. You know, before we lost Jane, I believed this with all my heart. But when we lost her, I believed it even more. God strengthened our whole family's belief. And you know why? Because our lives were founded upon the rock. And we know what the scripture says. The rains come and the waves come and they beat against that house. But it doesn't fall because the reason is because it's founded upon the rock. Same trials, the same heartache happen all the time to so many people. And there are people who run fast away from the Lord. But there are other people who don't. So our houses did not crumble. We were not crippled for life. Oh, we limped for a long time, in fact, still to this day. I guess you could say there's a part of us that limps. And I'm going to tell you something else. I witnessed my son, my grieving son, who was one of those that my greatest fear was losing him or his siblings. And then I watching him as a grown-up leading his family and his godly wife, the two of them together leading their children and their lives are founded upon the rock because God is faithful in and through our greatest fears. And if or when they come about, we can trust God that he will be faithful. Remember, he's ahead of us, and he's with us, and he will never leave us. He will never forsake us, and he gives us the grace that we need for every single moment that we face. And really, that's what's happening here. Remember in the previous chapter, she refused to see him alone, and now he's gone in her dream. 
It's right after this that she has this dream. And the dream continues in verse 4. Scarcely had I left them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held on to him and would not let him go. The dream, her dream ends with her finding him. And when she did, she held on to him so tightly, she wouldn't let him go. And isn't that what you would have done? And isn't that what we do? We hold on to that which we fear losing? I mean, I know there are a lot of military wives, and when their husbands are deployed, and you you fear for him, you long for him, and then finally, sometimes after months long of waiting, maybe even some of these dangerous deployments, he comes home. And when he comes home, we've all seen the pictures of the, the wives meeting their husbands and hugging them so tightly, hard to let them go. And how about those of you who, like me, couldn't find a child for a period of time, or like Mary, and then you did, and you held on to them so tightly. And God gives us a beautiful picture of this, even in Luke chapter 15. Remember this, the story of the prodigal son? A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country where he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? And I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way, off, his father saw him. His father felt compassion for him. And his father ran to him. And his father embraced him, literally fell on his neck. And his father kissed him. Fear calmed him. His fear was calmed It's like, I found him. He's back. He was gone, but he's back. He's no longer lost. He's here. You hold on to the one who was lost. And if God has saved you, he holds on to you. He will not let you go. See, you've probably heard Pastor Carl say so many times, it's not that we hold on to God. But he holds on to us. If we belong to him, he won't drop us. He won't let our foot slip into a, a, out of his care. He won't lose us. So in her dream, she held on to him when she found him. How long? She says, until I had brought him to my mother's house and into the room of her who conceived me. Do you see where she brought him? She brought him to her mother's house, to mama. And you know, I mean, you know, your mama represents security. 
especially when you're a little child. Your mother is love. She loves you unconditionally. Good mothers do. And your mama never stops loving you. She always believes in her children. You know, one time when I was talking to my parents and they were telling me how they came up with the names for the four of us. There's four of us in my family. And my daddy said they didn't really have a criteria for choosing names. They had three things, he said, that mattered to them. One, that they both liked the name. (laughs) Two, they wanted names that weren't too common, yet they didn't want weird names. They liked Tony. And, of course, my brother Tony was named, you know, the AG. My my dad was um, Archie Gerald McKay, and then Tony's Anthony Gerald McKay. And so they called him Tony. They liked Hope. That's my sister's name. They liked Audrey. My dad chose that name. And they liked the name Trent. And I told them at that time that I had only met two or three other Audreys in my lifetime, and, I, and then I said, but you know, I'm seeing more and more babies named Audrey today. It's like it's coming back. I'm meeting more of little girls named Audrey. I guess there's a resurgence in that name. That's what I said. And you know what my mother said? Well, that's because of you. <laughs> that's just what mothers do. She spoke it just like, well, that's because you're my daughter. And that's your name. Because so many times mothers think that way. They always provide a place of stability for their children. They give a sense of security. And you know what else? Though my mom now doesn't always know who I am, or she doesn't always call me by my name. When I was with her last week, she said, You belong to me, right? And I said, yes, I belong to you. She said, you're mine. And I said, yes. And my name is Audrey. And Daddy chose that name for me. And you know what she said after that? (laughs) You have a pleasant name. And think about this, when you see football players or fans on television and they're holding those signs and they have a chance to say something, it's usually like, hi, mom, because they want mom to see them if the camera pans that way. And it's not that dads are not important, they're incredibly important. But we all know that typically speaking, Mamas hold a special place in a child's heart. And that's the way God made it. That's why he says, you know, but she shall be reserved through the bearing of children if she continues with faith, love, sanctity, and self-restraint. Because it's an honored thing that God did. That's how he brought his son into the world. And it's a sad day when women don't want to be mamas anymore. It's a sad day when mamas don't want to raise their own children anymore. It's important not to let this culture rob us of our place in our child's heart. We need to be there. We need to raise them. And even in the most frustrating of days, and be there 
whenever they call, when they need you, even when they're grown, don't be too busy for them. You know, back when Carl, several years, a number of years now, celebrated his 50th, 50th birthday, I just remember I told him, thank you for being such a great father to our children. Thank you for being the provider. Thank you for encouraging me in, your, in my role, not only as your wife, but as mother to our children. And I thanked him for working so hard and giving me security and for seeing the priority of my working in our home instead of pressuring me to leave it. And here for this young Shulamite woman, in her dream, after finding the one whom her soul loves, she brought him to her home because it was her place of security, the place where her mama had raised her. Think about it, after the wandering desperately through the night, feeling lost and alone and insecure, she wanted the security of her mama's home. And it's still true today. Young brides want to go see their mamas a lot after they first get married. They want to talk to their moms. And of course, being newly married is a time of transition for young women. Mothers are to help their daughters in this transition. And for Christian mothers, we're the best ones to help our daughters and our daughters-in-law during this time if we are godly women. And this is a healthy thing. But... We all have to always keep in mind that our home, that mama's home is not to be a substitute for the bride's home with her husband. And that's one of the things we help young brides and these young women with, that you need to be your husband's helper. This is your home now. My home, mama's home now is the place I come to visit and I come to share that special bond and I want to spend time but I have a new home now. A young wife has a new home with her husband. Well, her dream ends, and it ends happily for her. And then the phrase by the Shulamite again in verse 5, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now think about it. It's a repeated phrase in this book. God wants us to get it. He wants to remind us once again that love and its sister emotion, passion, are huge forces in the lives of men and women. And if it is unrestrained, unharnessed, with no parameters, it can cause sorrow to the depths of our hearts. It can cause pain like no other. But when it's restrained, when it's held in check, when it's done God's way, it brings joy indescribable, beyond words. And we've been learning how this young woman only wanted the right kind of love. She wanted the right kind of passion. She didn't want her love awakened or aroused in ways that were displeasing to the Lord. She just didn't. She was the kind of girl who was very beautiful. You know, the king tells her that all the time. Very cute girl. Obviously, lots of fun because he wants to be with her. She's obviously charming because he's, he just, you know, jumping over those mountains trying to get to her. She'd probably at times feel stupid next to all of the celebrity clones of her day. But she'd be pure. She'd be holding the standard anyway. And how do I know that? Because here she is after her frightening dream saying the same thing again. 
I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. And it's fitting that this refrain would appear again at this moment in the dream, in the drama of what's taking place. Remember, he left her home because she told him to leave. What if he wasn't coming back? I mean, maybe that's what spawned the dream. Maybe she she could have questioned her standards. Did I do the right thing? Have you ever done the right thing and you know you did the right thing, yet because others questioned you or something happened that you didn't think would happen if you did the right thing, and then you kind of feel dumb, and then you wonder, and it's like, well, maybe I didn't do the right thing. Did I do the right thing? Well, she woke up from this dream having learned something. She woke up knowing, point two in your outline, she did the right thing. She woke up, she faced her greatest fear and she held her ground. She knew that the greatest passion of her life, that intense love and longing for this man, which could lead her into sin, had to be handled with utmost care and should not be aroused before its proper time. And now the story continues and we come to point three, which is the day of their wedding or his his wedding, her wedding, because they marry each other. (laughs) And it's quite the wedding, y'all. It's very different from the weddings of our day. In our day, the focus of the wedding is on the bride. It's all about her, almost as if the groom doesn't matter, almost as if he only exists to make her look good, kind of like he's an accessory to the wedding. But here everyone is looking at the groom as he comes for his bride. He was the focus in this drama. The wedding began with a procession to the bride's home. And this procession procession was led by the groom who then took her to their new home, which he had been preparing for her. Then they had a wedding feast. It could last a week, sometimes even longer. But even though the feast was ongoing, the bride and groom had a wedding chamber, and that's where they stayed their first night together. And here in the song, in these verses, we see the wedding procession and the wedding. We've been been invited to this wedding. So let's notice how he comes for her. Verse 6. What is this coming up from the wilderness? Like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all scented powders of the merchant. So the question begs an answer. What is this? It's the wedding procession. And these columns of smoke that are perfumed with myrrh and frankincense were burning in front of the procession. I mean, I like to kind of imagine that in my mind, what that would be like. It was very elaborate. It was very costly, just like weddings are today. (laughs) Amazing. It was meant to be quite the display. Marriage was a huge deal. Marriage still is a huge deal. Outside of salvation, it's the most important event in a person's life. That's why it's to be a big deal. That's why you say your vows in front of witnesses, why it's a worship service. It's supposed to be a public declaration of a man and a woman coming together in holy matrimony and and, and a holy covenant, a holy commitment. But you know as well as I do that no one wants commitment anymore. The National Center for Marriage and Family Research reports this. Three quarters, 76% 
of recent marriages in the time frame of this is 2015 to 2019. So that's still, it might be even higher now. They were preceded by cohabitation, living together. And then this study goes on to say that 48% are more likely to get divorced. You know, people say, oh, we'll live together to see if we're, you know, if we can, if we should marry. But the statistics, just raw statistics prove that they're more likely to get divorced if they do get married. And the other statistic that was kind of alarming to me, okay, people do it, but then 50 to 65% in America believe it's okay. It's okay to live together. I mean, we all know that people just live together. There's just no thought about it. It, They don't, you know, no one cares anymore. But y'all, this is a mockery to the holy covenant of marriage. And again, which is one man and one woman. So many things that are happening in our world today are just a mockery of God's holy covenant of marriage. The very book of beginnings in Genesis, when God lays it out, And is it any wonder that the book of Genesis is so under attack, even by people who call themselves believers, and even some of them are believers, but they look at those early chapters as if they're just poetry, if it's not history. We shouldn't be debating this, especially in the church. But people know. The law of God is written on their hearts. They know. But the fact that we have to affirm the sanctity of heterosexual marriage, one man and one woman, shows how far we've drifted from the heart of God. And the fact that we have so many people who claim to be believers who are living together before they're married shows how we're just a nation of drift and we've just adopted whatever the culture says. We don't know our Bibles. We don't know them. And then those of us who may know a little bit of our Bibles, we just say, it doesn't matter. We just believe the lies of the certain. What did God really say that? Did he really mean that? Did he really mean that? That seems a little harsh. One man, one woman, till death do they part? I mean, you know, the world laughs at Christian marriages, though. And why is that? Because so many Christians have made a mockery of marriage. And I'm talking about maybe those who claim to be Christians, but even those legitimate believers, too. Either they're getting divorced, or they're together because they don't believe in divorce, but they're just fighting like cats and dogs. They just cannot get along. They will not die to self. They will not put their own sinful nature aside. They will not walk by the Spirit so they won't carry out the desires of the flesh. They've just said, no, God, I will not obey you. I don't love him anymore. He makes me sick. What that, all that shows is that that person really does not love the Lord. Because if you love the Lord, you will keep his commandments. And part of keeping his commandments is to love and respect that husband of yours. But that's why this book is so incredibly refreshing. 
Verse 7, behold, it is the traveling couch of Solomon, 60 mighty men around it of the mighty men of Israel. Remember the question, what is this coming up from the wilderness? Answer, it's the wedding procession, and oh my, what a procession it is. Solomon's carriage is surrounded by 60 men, and you thought you had a lot of groomsmen at your wedding. These guys were his friends, but they weren't just any old friends. They were noble, upright men. They weren't giving him some drunken bachelor party. They were good, mighty men, and they were also good soldiers because verse 8 says, all of them are wielders of the sword, expert in war. Each man has his sword at his side, guarding against the terrors of the night. Now, why does Solomon have soldiers? Why were they wielders of the sword, expert in war? Why did they have swords at their sides? Why must they be men who would guard against the terrors of the night? Well, you know, Solomon had to travel to the country for his bride. He had to come up from the wilderness. So his groomsmen had to be men who knew how to fight. They had to be ready to fight. They needed to be ready to guard the bride against unprincipled men. And y'all, that's what good godly men do. Because there are a lot of unprincipled men out there. That's why we don't throw all, all men in one pile and say they're all unprincipled. No, we need the good men to guard against the unprincipled men. And that's what good godly Christian men do. So they, they had to do this. And it's such a beautiful picture of the protection that Solomon continued to provide for his bride. Remember how she had compared him to an apple tree back in chapter 2? She said, in the shade, I took great delight. In, in his shade, I took great delight and sat down. I mean, he had already protected her from the, you know, the taunts of those palace girls. He would already made her feel secure and safe and not ugly. And now he's about to take her away from the only place of security she has ever known, her mama's house. And the first thing he does as he prepares to meet his bride is have groomsmen who will guard and protect in the wedding procession. And that's one of the roles that God gives to a husband is that of protector. He's supposed to protect you. That's not a bad thing. I know the feminists of our day say, we don't need protection. Well, I need protection. I'm glad my husband takes that role seriously. I mean, I could, listen, <laughs> I could just name so many things. Oh, he was protecting me there. He's protecting me there. He did this because he's protecting me. And here Solomon is protecting his bride, demonstrated by the kind of men he gets to lead this procession. He's taking no chances for the safety of his bride. If they were attacked on their way, those soldiers would be ready. And a young man who wants to marry you if you're not married or your daughter needs to be ready to protect and defend his bride. And our sons need to know that this is one of the ways that they are to lead and provide for their wives one day. A man is to provide security for his wife. Too many women are carrying the financial load of their families when God's called the husband to carry the load, not that she can't help out, but they're worried about it. 
And as some of you, you know, you're thinking about marrying some guy once again. You got to think about these things. Does he work hard? Does he have a job? Is he planning for the future? Does, or does he just live hand to mouth? Or does he expect you to do it? Is he in major debt? Does he know how to handle money? Is he making it on his own or striving to get there? Or is he just living off his mama and daddy? Is he just living for the next time he can get on a video game? Or whatever it is they like to do. <laughs> the next playtime. And again, nothing wrong with playing. But playing comes after work and responsibility. It's the same thing as you're raising your children, you know. Yeah, there's plenty of time to play after the work is done, after the schoolwork is done, after we've done our chores. We'll have all kinds of time. In fact, you'll have more time to play if you fulfill your responsibilities. But Solomon not only reveals that he will protect his bride, he also reveals that he wants to provide the best for her. Verse 9, King Solomon has made for himself a sedan chair from the timber of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, and its seat of purple fabric with its interior lovingly fitted out by the daughters of Jerusalem. So he made his own sedan chair. And it was made of the very best, that is, wood from Lebanon. No cheap plywood here. He made it from quality, expensive materials. Now, of course, he could afford that. <laughs> Posts of silver, back of gold, its seat of purple. He did the best he could with what he could. He was giving his best. His love wanted his best for her. The kind of person she was brought out the best in him. And remember those palace girls? They're the ones who lovingly fitted out the interior of the chariot. They were happy for this couple. In verse 11, they are given a command. Verse 11, go forth, O daughters of Zion, and gaze on King Solomon. When the king arrives, all the women are told to go forth and look at him. Now, they aren't told to gaze at the bride. They're, they're told to gaze at the bridegroom because he's coming for his bride. And y'all, that's what we'll be gazing at when he, when he comes for us, when the ultimate bridegroom comes for his bride, the church. He's coming for his bride. And notice what he's wearing with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart. He's wearing the crown his mother gave him, not one of royalty, but one of love. And it's such a beautiful picture of a healthy relationship between a mother and her son. She's happy with his wedding. She's happy that he's found the one that his soul loves. She's celebrating with him that he's found his bride. Because she knows that this woman, from this day forward, will be the most important person in his life outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's so important who your sons marry, because she will have the greatest influence on him. It transfers, and she will either be, as the scripture tells us, rottenness to his bones or a jewel in his crown. I mean, remember, Eve was made from the bone of Adam. And then Proverbs tells us that a, that a bad wife is like rottenness in his bones, we have so much influence in the lives of our husband, whether it's to be rotten to them and tear them down where they just feel awful, 
or we have so much power within us to build them up and to encourage them to be the man that God has created them to be, a jewel in his crown. So if you're raising sons, please know that as the years go by, you will take a lesser place in that little boy's life, and you should. That's what you want. You want him to view his wife as the most important person in his life. You want him to be committed to her. His wife will and should take over his heart. But the love of you as a mom, the love of me as a mom, it runs so deep. And because it runs so deep, that's all the more reason we want him to find the one his soul loves. Because one day we'll be gone. For the most part, our children will outlive us. We know sometimes that doesn't happen. But sometimes I think about that, and I, th I, I think about my own children, and all four of my sons have, have found the ones their soul loves. And I think they're, gonna, they're the ones that I won't be around when they're 80 years old. But if God gives them that many years, and they're 80 and 90 together, I hope they're still gazing at each other, <laughs> and that they're loving each other with their whole hearts. Because even though we love our boys first, and we hold them dearly, and we can't imagine, you know, when, when my kids were little, my daughter too, but we're talking about sons right now. But, you know, I, th I used to think about the future in terms of when they grew up and they would get married. And pray for those girls. Pray for my sons that they'd be godly enough that a godly girl would say yes to them. And I'm so grateful. But that doesn't mean I stop praying for them even now because, you know, Carl and I have been married 43 years and we know the trials that you face as married couple. And we also know that as you face those trials together and you have the ebb and flow of your marriage that you can be married 43 years and love each other more than you did on your wedding day. And hopefully at 53 years if the Lord tarries and we're still alive, we'll love each other more then than we do at 43 years. So on the day my sons were married, like this mother, I didn't crown them with literal crowns, but I did crown them with my whole heart because as I just said, they've all found their brides, the ones who will be their lifelong companions, the ones they will depend on, the ones they will trust, the ones who will hold their hearts, the one their soul loves and they, as the husbands, are supposed to provide for and protect those girls and give them security and be committed to them. And what we see here, Solomon, it, the scripture says it was the day of his gladness of heart. And that's the way it's supposed to be. The day of a man's wedding and a woman's wedding, there's supposed to be gladness of heart. And his heart rejoices. That's what we see. If you're married, I can guarantee that your husband's heart rejoiced on your wedding day. He found his woman. And you said yes. I mean, he asked you to marry him, to be his lifelong companion, and you said yes. 
And there was gladness of heart. You know, we all look at the bride on a wedding day, but we, we should look at the, the man's face when he sees her coming down the aisle. So the question for us today, if you're married, is my husband's heart still rejoicing in me? And if you're not married, aren't you glad you're learning these things now? And whether in all of us, whether we're single or, ma- or married, we should be like the Shulamite wo- woman in her purity. All of us. I jure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken your love until she pleases. Father, I thank you for this chapter in the book of Songs. I thank you for what we see here. I thank you for all of the application that you've made in my own heart as I've studied it, as I've walked through it, and even today as I have been sharing it with these women. Father, you show us in your word that your plans are good. If we're single, that's good. If we're in love with the right person, that's good. If we're waiting in a time of waiting and we don't know what you're going to do, that's good. Being married is good. Wherever you have us at this stage of our lives is good as we trust you with the gifts that you have given us. Help us, O Lord, to want to know you more, to want to know your heart in all these areas of our lives. Help us to be captivated by it and we would pass these truths on to our children. Father, we've learned today that the wedding brings joy to a man's heart when he's found his bride. Your word teaches us that if we belong to you, we are your bride. And your word teaches us that you found us, that we are like sheep who have gone astray But you sought us, and all heaven rejoiced when we responded to you. And Father, we know from your word that one day you will come for us. You're preparing a place for us, and we will be united with you. And it will be the day that your heart rejoices, who for the joy set before him, that's what your word says, that you endured the cross despising its shame. Father, we thank you that you did endure the cross and that you were raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Father, I thank you for my salvation. I thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our bridegroom. In Jesus' name, amen. If you enjoyed this episode of Rare But Real, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. And share this podcast with friends. Follow Audrey on Instagram and Facebook at Mothering from the Heart. 
and listen to all her messages on the Search the Scriptures app.